welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 13, Staying Present, Awareness and Transference. So when you handle the transference, it's got to be met with abstinence. What it means by abstinence is you don't sleep with your clients. Um, you don't exploit them financially or emotionally. If they're, they're a really great web designer and they're your client, you don't hire them, <laughs> right? You keep the roles really, really separate. Um, you've got to recognize that if they're idealizing you, that comes out of the past. And don't go, yes, I am really fantastic, aren't I? Humility is not an optional extra in terms of therapy. It's, it's absolutely got to be part and parcel of it. And you need to know your own narcissistic needs, because if you're slightly vulnerable to someone flattering you, um, you need to know that you're vulnerable to someone flattering you. That's why it's important to be analyzed yourself. Okay, ways of not handling the transference. Um, I'd just like to recognize that I got this from Nina Coldhart's uh, beautiful chapter from a book called The Baby in the Bathwater. Uh, and I'm just summarizing what she says. Uh, ways of not handling the transference. So say someone gets very erotically caught up in you and decides that you're it and they tell you in intimate detail what they'd like to do with you. It's really important that you don't get embarrassed and say, could you just re-repress that? Thank you very much. I can't deal with this right now. You have to wear it, okay? You have to be able to handle it. So you've got to have a bit of courage. Um, if you get overwhelmed by the erotic charge, you can say, yes, it would have been great for us to have known each other when we were nine years old. I can imagine we'd have been great friends or we predated prior to sort of puberty. But but usually you've just got to handle it, basically. Um, if a person seems to be very stuck on a past issue, um, you know, that perhaps that they felt very lonely as a child in a big parental home or something like that, um, you can sometimes sort of uh, bring that into the present moment by saying, you know, is there any sense in which you're feeling lonely right now, despite the fact that you're here with me Um you know, in other words, you bring it into the into the present. They're telling you right now for some reason. So don't just look at the past. Have a look at the past being recreated in the present and just draw attention to, to that. So what Freud wants to do really is for you to go a bit nuts when you start psychotherapy. And it is actually what happens. And psychoanalysts are very different from cognitive behavior therapists in that you'll hear a psychoanalyst say, oh, so great, you know, I've been working with this person who's slightly psychopathic and they just got really depressed. That's great, you know, like, hello, <laughs> you're just saying your client got depressed and that's good because depression means they're starting to be connected to you if they're psychopathically inclined. And the hardest thing with psychopathically inclined people is getting any transference going at all. Okay. Or it might be you're working with a depressed person. Ah, had a great session with my client today. They're furious. They're really angry. Like, oh, great. <laughs> So this is progress, ha? Huh? Well, it is because angry people are putting the anger out onto the world. Depressed people are putting the anger back in on themselves in some way. And it's actually, you can work with it far more if it's out against the world as an external behavior rather than an internalizing behavior. So what you want to have happen is to recreate a neurosis, but a, a transference one, a new neurosis, one that sort of, you know, exists between you and the other person. And, um, and then you slowly examine the attitudes, affects, fantasies, assumptions about the analyst, because that's going to express the central organizing themes about a person's life. Nancy McWilliams was supervised by Sylvan Tompkins, the major, major affect theorist. 
And he talks about schemas, scripts, nuclear scenes, and you can see that in the way that Nancy works as a therapist. So the heart of psychoanalysis is that the, the neurosis becomes full-blown again in the, in the consulting room. You systematically analyze and resolve it in the consulting room. And what it means is that you come to be able to piece together an understanding of the continued effects now, in the present, of one's historical conflicts. And so what you're doing, instead of repeating something behaviorally, you can turn it into an object of thought. So you're substituting knowledge for repetition. And so, and Freud really didn't want to acknowledge that part of that was the analyst's unconscious material. He really wanted the therapist to be a blank slate because it was much more scientific. You could be much more sure that you were focusing on the analyst's issues. But he did recognize that there was unconscious to unconscious communication and therefore, you know, reluctantly recognized countertransference. Yes, there's a really great question. It was Freud analyzed. Not really, because <laughs> um, he kind of couldn't be in a way because there was nobody to be analyzed by. But he kind of used his friend Fleece as an analyst. So their correspondence, their intellectual correspondence is kind of Freud's analysis in a sense. And Freud tries to do a self-analysis via his dreams and via his love of jokes and all that kind of stuff. But one of the reasons that I think you do see in his theorizing some of his blind spots is because he, he didn't really have an analyst. Do you know? Um, and so some of the kind of lingering prejudices about women, for instance, might arise from the fact that he was kind of incompletely analyzed himself. What I find more difficult, and this is just gossip, psychoanalytic gossip's very juicy, um, is that he analyzed his daughter. You know, how healthy is that going to be? You know, can you really get out your feelings about your dad if he's the analyst? It's like, mm, I don't know. He should have passed her on to some other analyst by that stage, but he didn't. So it's interesting stuff there, I think. Okay. Um, so the importance of analysis in training. Freud was adamant about this. He thought that, that analysts had to know as fully as possible their own unconscious conflicts. So you have to be through therapy yourself. And people get freaked by that. They go, but you're the therapist. Yep. And you've been in therapy. Yep. But isn't that a bad thing? No. <laughs> Do you know? It's like, it's almost like there's a tacit sign of weakness that if you've had to go to therapy, there's been something terribly wrong with you. Whereas Freud would say we're all neurotic to a degree. And so to some extent, you know, all of us would benefit to some extent from uh, some therapeutic moments in our lives. And he actually saw it as an essential training criterion. Well, one of the reasons you have to be trained is you have to be really great at picking the difference between transference and love. And that's what I started with in the lecture, partly to be cheeky, but because I think it's a major issue in life. Um, you know, love is whole ego to whole ego. It's a surplus. You don't need that other so desperately that you feel that you would die if you didn't get them. But that's not really true because you feel like you'd die if you lost them. Phenomenologically, if you really love someone, you feel like you'd die if you lost them. But actually, you wouldn't. You'd be all right. You'd survive. If you're too fused and too merged and you really wouldn't survive without the other person, you might have a somewhat narcissistic relationship. And most love has got a bit of narcissism mixed in with it. There's no firm lines here, basically. But love is, I, I think love diagnostics was a title that I saw when I was editing this this morning. I thought, oh, that's a very cool title. 
You can do love diagnostics. You watch what happens when someone loses an important person, how they mourn them, or when they get them completely. Do they suddenly neglect them and have affairs? Or do they, are they mean and vicious and controlling and abusive and violent? Because, you know, Karen Horney suggests that monogamous marriages, particularly in a patriarchal society, is a real worry because it reignites men's fantasy of wholly possessing the other, you know, and this can lead to the extremes of jealousy and violence. And one of my PhD students, who's now a doctor in her own right, Pavani Pinuala, um, looked at domestic violence in Sri Lanka. And I can tell you those 25 interviews and 150 psychometric profiles that we did were some of the most grueling interviews I've ever read in my whole life in terms of what was visited upon these women and not just by the men, but sometimes by their own mother's tolerance of the level of violence. Well, if he kills you, then we'll see what happens and I'll take care of the children. And that's a mother talking to a daughter. It's like, it's just unimaginable. And I was, I always wanted to go over with, you know, the cattle prod and Parvani was going, Doris, you would be no use at all. You know, just relax. And I'd be getting all steamed up about it. So when you've got a patriarchal society, that doesn't really respect the power and rights of women to have their own bank accounts or their own money or their own autonomy. And the women are in a, a marriage where to be a good woman means you tolerate certain things. It's very, very risky um, because, you know, you become not fully a, a, a subject, a cultural subject, and there can be difficulties with that. Okay, so, so I think psychoanalysis, even though it's sometimes not completely culturally respectful to say these sorts of things, psychoanalysis alerts us to danger signs. And, you know, the status of women in patriarchal cultures is a biggie, I think. And there's a lot more um, issues that are political and psychoanalytical all at once. Transference seems very much like love, but don't ever forget that transference is about power, authority and charisma, basically. And you have to keep that in mind. What if the analyst does have feelings? Let's say the, the analyst does fall in love. Do you speak them? I'm actually, I've been asked to write a paper on this and I'm writing it right now. And so that's probably why I'm throwing so much at you today in this lecture because I'm right in there with all of this stuff. I think disclosure is very risky. I don't think it's a good idea personally, but some analysts think you can work by disclosing that you feel sexually attracted to a client. I think it wouldn't be a great thing to refer the client on without signaling to them, I'm actually referring you to another therapist because I feel for various reasons I'm not able to give you the best therapy I could right now. Okay, that would be about as close as I would go. You know, if it's overwhelming, you just desire them so much that you're not objective anymore, you're not going to be a good therapist. You probably should refer them on, but make sure it's not an abandonment. But I don't know that I would disclose because, you know, if they've got parental transference towards you and they've actually been, say, sexually abused and then you say, I've got the hots for you, it's like, oh, great, you know, repetition of the worst sort for someone. So you just, you don't know what a person's bringing into the therapeutic room. So you have to be very careful. But that's just me. I'm inherently quite conservative about those sorts of things, I suppose. I, so I think neutrality is a good thing, you know. I'm really old-fashioned. Okay. So I think that transference as a medium of cure, and it is a medium of cure, you're never fully cured, but you can get a bit better. I think it, there's a real art to being able to poise yourself in the transference. And I think that it's a mistaken belief that we all have that transference only happens in therapy. It happens anywhere where there's power. 
anywhere where there's power, there's going to be transference, you know. Um, anywhere where there's an intensely intimate relationship where you share vulnerabilities, there's going to be transference. It's just that the, the analytic situation is set up to intensify it. Having you lie on a couch and talk about yourself and talk about your sexual fantasies and your dreams, that's going to do it, you know. Um, but then it's also set up so that you recognize the transference. The terrible thing is when you get caught up in bouts of sibling rivalry, you can be sure there's a lot of transferential going on. But is that situation ideal for recognizing it? No, not really. You just sometimes have to wear it. So what intensifies transference? Neurotic people, that's all of us. Ambivalent people, that's all of us, okay? Due to the intimacy of the situation, that's a contextual factor. That's the frame. You have to keep that in mind when someone is idealizing you and falling in love with you, that in part it's due to the situation, in part it's due to your power, but one's unconscious comes out for a stroll nonetheless. And it's not just the analyzand's unconscious, your own unconscious is going to be come out for, for a stroll as well. Hopefully you recognize it if you've been in therapy yourself. Um, there's lots of views of countertransference. Some people say everything that happens in therapy is transference and countertransference. Then some people think, no, there's actually a genuine relationship that's in the here and now. I'm one of those. I think there is also a present relationship, but I think there is a subset of things that occur transferentially. But most of it's transference. And even the therapeutic alliance is going to be infused by transference some days. Okay, so, but you, I do believe you've got a genuine bond to the other. And, um, so the only, um, some people sort of suggest that, uh, the, the Zand is the only person who's really got transference and don't think that the therapist has to look at their own transferential processes. I would never take that position. I would certainly recognize that the therapist will continue to have transference as long as they're living. And of course, that's going to be in the mix and in the room as well. Um, and sometimes it's going to be helpful and sometimes it's not. When you use countertransference, it's when people communicate by impact. And so you've got to take note of unusual feelings and impressions and use them as a way of gaining insight into what the analyzand may be unconsciously producing. And you've got to feel the, the pressure of that, what you're being scripted to do, get angry, reject, seduce, ignore, blame. So you can use awareness of your own countertransference in interpretation. You can say, I'm feeling a lot of pressure to, you know, transfer you on to a more powerful colleague. So I'm wondering if you're, you're feeling some uh, criticism of my adequacy to handle handle this situation right now. Okay, that's you owning it as something that you're feeling, um, which is the gentlest way to bring it into the room. Okay, so being present, it takes a lot because we've got transference that gets in the way. We've got schemas that get in the way and they're very useful cognitively. Enactments where I'm not aware I'm doing something that comes from my past, it's outside of language. I might even just have habits of attending that I don't notice things or don't listen to things that are of a particular genre. So if someone's being very flattering, I might turn off, right? Um, or I might have habits of expression. Uh, you know, I might be so used to people telling me painful things that I don't react too much and the person thinks I'm callous. And in fact, I'm just not wanting them to worry that they're burdening me. 
Okay, so I may have habits of expression of being neutral when someone's telling me something that's utterly painful because I don't want them to worry about burdening me. But you've got to watch that because that could be a, a rejection or that could mean that you don't care about their suffering to them. And face work's a really interesting thing. We all do it. Face work is when we know more than we show. So we limit our expression of our emotion. But limiting our expression of our emotion can also limit our inner experience. If I have to watch a film with a neutral facial expression, I won't feel as much about that film. And, and apparently I won't remember incidental details as much about that film because it costs cognitive it takes cognitive load for me to monitor my facial expression and modify them. So face work is cognitively costly unless you're a real expert at it. And so I may produce certain facial expressions because my parents want me to or because my culture wants me to, and that is going to have an effect on my body. So if I'm never allowed to show my anger because I'm socialized to be a good woman, Okay, every time I feel anger, I'm going to be doing a lot of cognitive work not to show my anger. Or if I'm doing face work because my boss says I have to smile at the clients, even if they're throwing hot coffee at me, that's a genuine example from uh, Hoch Shield's work with Delta Airlines that someone was throwing boiling hot coffee at the air hostess and they were supposed to smile and take it. It's like amazing. It's part of your job. That's that air hostess smile. That's what they're paid for. But I think this produces bodily changes, and I'd be very interested in the kind of psychosomatic consequences of having to smile in the face of a customer that was throwing hot coffee at you. I, I would think that would take a lot out of your body. It would take a lot out of mine, I can tell you. I, w I don't know how I'd handle that. I don't think very well. <laughs> um, what can happen, though, when you get very expert at not paying attention to emotion is that it shapes how much access you've got to your inner bodily experiences. Because how we attend to our affects and how we produce our emotions is a powerful shaping force of what it feels like to be us, our inner experience. So why on earth do we have to learn to be present? Because there are lots of barriers to it. Not being able to sense what's going on within us. Um, if, we, if we're attached to people, that will save us from feeling fear. That will encourage our curiosity and interest and surprise about the environment. But if we're attached, we will take on board something of the attachment style of the other about do we dismiss or avoid our own feelings? Do we dismiss or avoid the feelings of others? Because attachment means we have to care about what our parents emphasize as being important. So it has its costs. And attunement is a crucial precursor or a precursor of um, empathy, I suppose, um, that means we, we come to sense the reality of our pleasure. We come to sense the reality of our pain because there's somebody who's really receptive and available to us as a person who loves us and is paying attention to us in, in, a, in a very powerful sort of way because attunement is the thing that I think forms part of those templates of transference because it occurs outside of awareness and almost automatically. If our parent looks away from us or ceases to attend to us when we're distressed, that's a message about how our distress is going to be received. We may come to believe that if we show distress, we'll be rejected. Now, and empathy is a little bit different from attunement because with empathy, I have to be pretty cognitively aware 
I have to recognize that you're separate from me, that you're having a particular feeling, that I can feel that feeling, but then I take a compassionate stance to that feeling. So empathy's got a lot more heavy-duty cognition going on, but both of them entail that emotional resonance, that I have to be able to sense your feeling, unconscious to unconscious. I need to be able to know your state and feel it within me. But then I have to be able to return that to you in a safe sort of way. I have to recast it in another sensory register and sort of reflect it back to you in, a, in some way. So it's a really different kind of affective transaction and it's one that really fascinates me. And what attunements is all about, you know, when I talk about the modus vivendi, the way of living, if you think about it, with me standing up here these last seven lectures, you get used to particular kinds of intensities of my voice, the sort of timing, how, how quickly I speak, the shape of my behavior as I gesture and things like that. You haven't necessarily been consciously attending to those things. You've been focusing on the words I'm saying. But alongside all of that has been the what it is like to be lectured by Doris, which would be different from what it is like to be lectured by someone else. It's in the mix as well, is all I'm saying. And that's part and parcel of what you pick up and remember and take on board. And attunement's crucial, because if you don't get attunement, you never really step outside of narcissism. You never really get a sense of inner space. And you never really get the sense of the other as whole other. And so attunement is what at least in part, gets recreated in the therapeutic situation. That's what the therapist's there for. They are attuned to you. They offer themselves up like a transitional object. You can borrow their capacity to soothe. You can borrow some of their skills. You can lean on them and rely on them and depend on them. It's a kind of transitional relatedness where they're kind of part of you but not part of you. So you sort of merge slightly, a la cohort, with the therapist. They become a self-object to you, and it is highly therapeutic. Now, just because I'm a purist, I have to tell you about Winnicott. Transitional objects are little inanimate objects. Sometimes they can be pets. Sometimes they can be fantasies. Sometimes they can be songs. Or one of my friends has got a mantra that she says when she's really furious at someone. She's going, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, so that she doesn't nuke them. You know, it's very creative use of yoga theory, I think, you know, to avoid nuking someone by a mantra. But it's a kind of magical thinking that creates a comforting sense of presence. It's like you're bringing some safety, some sense of presence into the world. And it could be maternal, could be spiritual, but it's something that's going to ward off anxieties. And usually it's something that wards off the threat of separation. So if, if your lover goes away for a while, you might sleep on his or her side of the bed because their smells are there or their pillows there or their jammies are there or whatever. And so a transitional object, is an, it's a real object in the world, but it's subjectively conceived. So it can do things for you. And Winnicott says, look at what someone uses their transitional object to do for them. And that will give you a sense of what that object is to them. So if they use it to soothe or to go to sleep or relax or when they're alone, you get the sense of it. And that transitional space is, in, is a play space as well. It's a, it's a space of illusion, which is a motivated, wishful way of viewing the world. It's not delusion. You don't think it's reality. 
It's a motivated, wishful way of viewing the world. And, you know, like when I was sort of talking about you coming to me and saying, could you just write my essay for me? That was me in the space of illusion. Like, what if? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could just do things like that? And so what therapy offers is transitional relatedness, Fine Silver says. Yes, you're having a very real conversation with another human being. But that other human being is partly a creation of yourself. You're dumping a lot of stuff onto them. You're projecting stuff onto them. And they're sort of under your control in some way. So that person, that analyst, is partly imaginary, partly real, partly related to play. But they're also serving to comfort you by warding off separation anxiety. And when a client might ring up if they've had something terrible happen, they need an emergency session, that's exactly what they're doing. And it's important for you to be able to be there if you can. Um, so essentially, it's a comforting relatedness with a concrete aspect of the outside world, but it's infused with bits of you, and they're quite creatively infused by aspects that are dear to oneself, and sometimes they're aspects of an object that you've otherwise had to give up. Like if you had a grandmother that you really love, and you feel very much like your therapist has got that sort of grandmotherly quality, then that's really beautiful. It's like you're re-encountering a form of love in the world that you thought you had had to lose. So it's hard for us as psychologists to recognize that schemas can be a barrier to being present because, you know, schema just is a shorthand. I've got a schema for going to a restaurant. I've got a schema for how you say thank you. I've got a schema for what's appropriate or not appropriate at a wedding, for instance. But, um, you know, schemas are ways of you know, bringing things that you've learned in the past into the present. And so they can stop you from really being present because you just respond schematically. And that might not be what's actually on offer in the present moment. And the interesting thing about schemas is we think of them as terribly cognitive, but they've actually got an affective anchor. Like a, an internal working model is an attachment schema. That's all it is. And schemas can influence what we pick up on and what we don't. If I go through a house... Imagining I'm going to burgle it, I'm going to pay attention to it in one way. If I go through a house as a potential home buyer, I'm going to pay attention to it in another way, unless I'm a very paranoid new home buyer who's worried about security. So schemas can end up, even though they might be something that arises in the moment as a transient affective experience, once a, an affect gets schematized, it becomes a dispositional part of your personality. Like if I've got schemas of I don't want to be swindled, you know, I'm looking, I'm on the lookout for anybody that's trying to get a fast, pull a fast one on me, right? That becomes a personality attribute. Having been swindled and despairing once, that was a single situation. But once it's a schema, it changes who I am and how I look at the world and what I notice and what I don't notice about the world. And this, and shame's a biggie. If I've been shamed by some about something. I, I find it very difficult to reenact that or to bring that to mind again. I might just attend away from that. You know, if I was quite a selfish little girl and really delighted in, you know, um, annoying my sister and, you know, keeping her in, in, out of the spotlight, that might be quite difficult for me to bring to mind. You know, if I've been made to feel ashamed of that rather than, hey, that's what kids are like. Um, and so that whole notion of, you know, that we attend away from certain things and that's not motivated. Yeah, right. <laughs> attending away or attending towards, that's motivated. There's going to be emotions involved in that. 
Um, but the interesting thing is that the things that we habitually leave unattended or split off, like our own greediness or our own clamoring for attention, right? Um, the, those can sometimes come to be like subselves or compartmentalized parts of ourselves that we're no longer comfortable with knowing is there. Okay. And this is a distinction that I make that I don't think you'll find in the literature, but I could have forgotten where I read it. <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure about that. These terms exist, but I'm using them in a unique way that I, I find very useful. Okay, so when I talk about dissociation personally, I talk about separate ego nuclei where you have a compartmentalization, where it's like there are two subselves. So the sculpture Doris or the accountant Doris, right? Sort of two different styles of being. And that's called the vertical split a la cohort. Now, désagrégation comes from Janet, historical writer on dissociation. And what that is, is that's where, yes, I feel anger. It arises in my body, but I've been raised to be a good woman and I'm not going to feel anger. I'm certainly not going to express it. So that bodily experience is not attended to. Um, I don't even know it's there. It doesn't get to my facial expression. Don't clench my fist. I'm certainly not going to avow it in language. Yes, I felt angry. I'm not going to label it and share it with you. So in other words, there can be all sorts of levels or layers whereby something is degrees of awareness. Yeah, The bodily cloud of anger. Oh, yes, in my Fists clenched, but then I released them. Oh, and there was a fleeting micro-momentary expression. If you had the slow-mo camera on me, yep, there it was for a millisecond. Doris was angry for a millisecond. Did you feel anger then, Doris? No. <laughs> okay. Not going to put it in words. Okay, so disaggregation is I can dissociate in that I can halt or stop the cognitive processing to prevent something from fully becoming a psychological experience. Oh, I might have I might have felt anger, but no, that was just my foot twitching. Oh no, I just I was, my hand was a bit stiff, you know? Like in other words, I give you another account for the clenching fist. So it's a it's a different kind of account of dissociation. And I think there are these two different models of dissociation in the literature. And a lot of people claim evidence that George Bonanno and Negrio and all of his colleagues get. And they say, see, this proves the existence of dissociation. Well, it does. It proves the existence of one aspect of dissociation. But does it suggest that we've got multiple personalities and that they've got separate IQs and different motivational signatures? I don't think so. I'm not quite sure how you can marry these two different views of, of dissociation in the literature. And I think it's very, it's intriguing to separate them out. Now, what I'm interested in, I don't really mind about dissociation or disaggregation because I don't think anybody in the literature knows either at the moment. I think it's a real hot potato and there is no right answer because nobody knows. It's totally up for grabs. But I, what I think is interesting is that shame promotes both of those. I will not acknowledge my greedy, spontaneous, joyous, vying for attention parts of myself, and that will function a bit like a sub-self. But what it also means is that when I feel like I want to vie for attention or I'm feeling greedy or overly spontaneous, I will also not avow those experiences. So in other words, that's how I deal with those emotions pressing for some kind of expression. And that disaggregation is very like repression. 
Because if you think about that diagram that I showed you from section 7, um, subsection H of Freud's interpretation of dreams, where there was a stimulus coming in, and then there was a percept, and then there was nemic trace, nemic trace, nemic trace, pre-conscious, conscious, yeah. It's kind of like, here's the feeling of I want the spotlight. Nemic trace, nemic trace, not letting it go any further. It's not going to hit the pre-conscious. It's not going to hit conscious awareness. It's gone. I've attended away, right? That's very like repression. So desagregation ends up looking very like repression in my view. Totally only my view. And I can't say that loudly enough or leap up and down loudly enough. It's just a perspective that I've got at the moment from lots and lots of reading. But I'm not sure if it's even right. So there you go. But I do think we tend to disown and judge and it makes us very, it makes it very difficult for us fully to experience as a psychological event something that we've been shamed. Now the interesting thing, and this is why I like Bonanno so much, George Bonanno's amazing, is that he just doesn't stigmatize. He says these are just processes. They're not necessarily pathological processes. And actually, to be a good therapist, you have to get quite good at desegregation. Like if someone's telling me something horrific, and I've left an article online for you called A Disruption in the Subjectivity of the Analyst for you to read about someone telling someone about a horrific event. If someone tells you about a horrific event and you're going, oh, God, I can't believe you did that, right? That's not really all that therapeutic, do you know? Because this person is just being brave enough to tell you something. Man, you've got to be good at face work at that moment. You have to manage it at the level of body because they're going to be watching you like a hawk. If your fingertips are going to reveal it, if you retract, if there's an in-breath, if you look away, they're going to be watching you. So you actually have to go, oh, my God, I'm feeling this. I must not express that for the sake of them, for the sake of a spaciousness so they feel it's okay to bring this into the room. I have to achieve neutrality. That's why I'm a big fan of neutrality. I'm lousy at it, as you can imagine, because I'm so expressive, but I work very hard at it. One of my one of my friends says I'm not as bad at it as I think. But I think I think I've got a lot to learn about neutrality. But I aspire to it for that very reason that it leaves the other a spaciousness, it leaves them safe to bring whatever they need to bring into the room. But if you get too good at it, I think the risk is you lose touch with your body. So I'm really interested in whether or not you retain the full amplitude, feeling, intensity of your own inner life if you also are very expert at controlling the expression thereof. Do you live palely? Do you act out? Do you lose control of things? Or do you lose your creativity? Because the skilled handling of inner experience is one of the things that's absolutely required of you if you're an actor or a therapist or a performer of any sort. And therapists do have to perform in a way. Even though they're utterly wanting to be as genuine and real as they can be, sometimes for moments they have to uh, perform so that they don't impinge on the other, so that their stuff doesn't damage the other. And that's part of what you're paid for, that you have to do that. And that's why you sometimes need to go to supervision yourself if you've been dealing with really tough stuff and not expressing it in the moment. What you have to do, this is what I'm writing about at the moment, is you have to be able to have a reflective encounter with your desire. You have to go, I'm feeling really angry, but I'm not going to express it. But you still have to know that you're feeling angry because it's evidence of something. It's important. And you might act out if you don't know it. And um, 
So sublimation is required, and I don't know that I've really got the time for this, but I'm going to go really fast. So you can fall asleep because this is too hard for a third-year subject, okay? But I'm excited by it. I'm writing about it. I'm just going to tell you about it very quickly. Okay. Is space work a form of sublimation? I think yes. In sublimation, a single drive can't hold itself back. Drives are just accelerators. They don't have brakes. It's just go, 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 go. If I want to swerve, I'm hoping that my um, hunger drive makes my sex drive swerve. Don't go for that person or you'll die. Hunger wants to continue to exist, and it makes me go for someone that's not going to result in my being killed. So sublimation is always about conflict, either between a drive and an affect or a drive and a drive or an affect and an affect. And it must always be conflict, however minor. Sublimation costs you. It's a defense mechanism. It's an exquisite defense mechanism, but it's a defense mechanism. And what happens is I want, say, this person as my lover, but if I get this person as my lover, I'm going to die, right? So my ego is going, no, Doris, no, Doris, go for the next best person. Can't you just displace along the chain of desirability and go for someone who's not such a costly mate? Yes, you're going to have one hour of bliss, and then you're dead, Doris. Go for, go for option B, plan B, please, okay? So it's trying to get you to displace along a chain of association. And it could be desirability, it could be anything. But that's a weaker satisfaction. And weaker satisfactions, you know, are not quite as arousing. And so there's libido left over, unexpressed libido. What do you do with that unexpressed libido? You use it to reflect back upon yourself. So it's a kind of like a, uh, it's like a wave that hits a wall and it sort of like, you know, splashes back into the inner space and you have a reflective encounter with your desire. I would really have liked to go with person A, but it would have cost me my life. So here I am going with person B. Okay. And sublimation is substituting one object for another or one act for another. And that's what art is about. And that is the art of sublimation, that you go for objects that are in associative connection with each other, but you're displacing slightly. Now, sublimation, Doris starts tub-thumping. Lots of people disagree with me about that. You can tell I'm getting intense because it's a disputed notion. Some people think sublimation is the desexualization of the libido. I think you wish, right? I don't think you can desexualize the libido. The libido always remains libido. I think it just can be displaced onto other objects and um, other people. But what's great about sublimation is it leaves you that little surplus that you can use for a reflective encounter with your desire, which is what you do if you're a therapist. And that's exactly what's required of you. So you think, I'm really attracted to this person. That's probably got something to do with that person. And perhaps I also think they're a really attractive person, but it's not in their interest for me to express or come to uh, nurture that in any way. I'll just let that be. So it permits a recursive loop. And that stops you from expressing your emotion and it stops you from acting out behaviorally. And so you become a bit of a safe person to be around because you sort of are in touch with yourself and you're not a loose wire in some ways. But you're still fully feeling. That's what I love. It's like you don't lose the fullness of feeling. You might a little bit, but hopefully you don't lose too much. And reflective encounter is a kind of mindfulness. You acknowledge something is there, but you don't have to express it. You know, if you look at psychology, a lot of the stuff that they talk about in dealing with stress is problem-solved, problem-focused coping. And 
emotional focus coping, you know, is acknowledged as a second resort if you can't actually act upon the world, which is so Western. But, you know, a lot of dealing with stress is actually dealing with the fact that emotions get stirred up within us. They get stirred up so quickly, quick, dirty, limbic responses, fast, initiated without conscious thought. You're there before you know it. And what do you do with that? And, you know, if you look at the sort of history of Western civilizations, particularly, it's a history of what we've done, things we've done. If you look at the East, it's refreshingly different. It's also a fabulous history of attempts at self-knowledge. You look at the Yoga Sutras, they're amazing. Oh, you look at Buddhism in the various stripes. It's just absolutely fascinating stuff. Now, the thing that makes me sad about that, though, if you look at Varela et al. back in 96, cognitive scientists, they were saying, we need to look at self-reflective awareness. It's a neglected issue. Let's look to the East. And I'm going, but what about psychoanalysis? You've got this whole history within your own culture of attempts at self-insight and understanding. But Freud is a taboo. No self-respecting cognitive science is going to read Freud. So we'll read yoga and Buddhism instead, you know, because that's at least exotic, not Freud, you know. And that's I think that's so sad. I think that's when we're schematic and prejudiced and not looking at what Freud might have to offer, over and above the fact that he talks an awful lot about sex and having sex with your mother. And no wonder cognitive scientists don't want to read him. He's scary. Okay, but psychoanalysis and mindfulness are incredibly close. They both want you to stop repeating and to start being aware. And that's the first ingredients of successful therapy as well, to remember forgotten aspects of your childhood. But Epstein, and that's why I've given you this chapter as part of your readings for Tudes, he says, look, it's really difficult to remember the past, but my word, it's hard to uh, remember the present, to know that you know that you know to really know what's going on within you right now. Isn't the lecture over yet? My bum hurts. When I'm going to have lunch. You know, what's really going on right now? This actual present tense experience. Um, and I suppose what I wanted to talk to you about today is how we ever got estranged from our inner experience. And he says that which we repeat, that which we resist knowing about ourselves, is that which we're most identified with, but least aware and least able to remember consciously. So behavioral enactments, templates of loving, that's going to be the window in, in a sense. We, we tend to feel shame. We get sometimes too caught up in the content of our thought too. You know, we, we go, that dirty rat, you know, and you just get really, really angry. You don't go, gosh, I'm getting intensely angry about something that's quite minor, right? You just get caught up in the anger. And before you know it, you think you've everybody else that's ever been a dirty rat to you, and then you're lost, okay? So you get caught up in the content rather than being curious about how your mind works. And to uncover how your mind works, there are two things among many that help. One is bare attention, a la Jacob Epstein, Buddhism, and psychoanalysis. They come from very different traditions, but my goodness, when you start to read them in depth, they've got a lot in common. Both of them think that body and mind are one and the same thing. Both of them are deterministic. Both of them think the present can reveal the past. Both of them think silence is really important and that there are different forms of silence. And both of them think that sometimes you don't cognitively interpret. You sit with something. So I, I think it's pretty cool. 
And Epstein's really cool on silence. He says, you know, if you really pay attention to the here and now, you'll find that it's teeming with possibility and texture, that there are many pre-verbal, unremembered experiences that can sometimes leave traces in the forms of absence or emptiness. Noticing what's not there is a really interesting issue. Oh, they didn't sign the letter with love you, or there's only two kisses, you know, or something like that. There's absences that you notice. Okay, Freud says to his analysts, you've got to be capable of an evenly hovering attention to listen without judgment. Um, uh, you mustn't have an irritable reaching after fact and reason. You've got to sit with not knowing. Thanks so much, Freud. How will I do that? Um, magic happens. <laughs> you know, see you later. This is what Buddhism can really offer psychoanalysis. It teaches you bare attention. Freud expected you to be able to do it, but he didn't really teach you how to do it. And mindfulness is a continual returning to the here and now. I love the notion of it's a literally coming to one's senses. You notice when you're really caught up in negative emotions or emotions from the past, you aren't really perceiving what's around you right now. You know, it's like you can walk into lampposts or trip over. I get incredibly clumsy when I'm caught up in the past because I'm not quite paying attention to my current environment. So opening up to the transitoriness of experience makes us feel more real. But also, if you're angry and you pay attention to it, you'll notice it passes. You know, you don't stay angry for three years or it's unusual, you know, if you do. So mindfulness is wanting you to be aware of what's happening as it's happening and aware of the flux, that things are not a constant. And the final thing that mindfulness has got to teach psychoanalysis, and that's only my little list, is a very clear and balanced apprehension of reality. Because you think about it, psychoanalysis says your perception of the world is motivated. What drive state you're in right now influences what you see. What affects you've got influence what you pay attention to. Your schemas render some things salient and other things fall into the background. So you're going to be missing out on a whole lot of stuff. So you've got to pay attention to the things you're missing out on. It's a big ask. But that is truly a balanced apprehension of reality because we're motivated knowers. We only see a little slice of things. So to be really enlightened means you can sort of see just about everything. And uh, it's not um, a journey elsewhere it's a re-perceiving of what's already present. And in a sense, that's what psychoanalysis wants you to do as well. You know, you, I think it's, is it Hamlet? Where he talks about not being able to see reality clearly unless you take the motes that are out of your mind's eye. You know, when you've got little floaters in your eye and they are everywhere at the blank screens. You might be too young. I've certainly got them. You know, but you're aware of them when you look at something blank, you can sort of see little floaters. Well, in a sense, our schemas and our, the residue from our past is like having those little floaters in your eye. They're influencing what you're seeing in the world. But you have to recognize, oh, that's actually in my eye. That's not part of reality. And that's what bare attention offers you, is to be able to own some of what you put onto reality. So it's a clear and single-minded awareness of what's happening to us and in us at successful, successive moments of perception. And what I love about it is it, it enables you to separate out your reactions from the raw sensory events. Like if someone's throwing a cup of coffee at you, 
that's pretty raw, you know. But the hostility and the fury that you might feel, or the kind of, oh, yeah, that's what customers are like, okay, that's your reaction and that's adding something to that event. And sometimes for you to be able to own what bits you're bringing to it can defuse the situation a bit. That was Lecture 13 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.